All right. Uh, for those of you who might be visiting today, we uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to be picking up that today. I took a week off and uh, for last week, and I talked about uh, understanding emotions. You can grab that in the book in the in the CD, whatever I don't know. What we call it. we call it a bookstore, but it's not really a store. But uh, you can grab the CDs if you missed that. But I'm going to I'm going to get back into uh, Ephesians today, and, and we've uh, we've made it all the way to chapter two. Uh, we'll be starting uh, with uh, chapter two, verse one. You can flip there if you want to. I won't read it for a few minutes, but just to briefly review what we talked about a couple weeks ago before we took that little uh, rabbit trail on on emotions. Um, uh, you know, most of you know that the the, uh, the books of the Bible, I'm sure, uh, probably all of you know this, they, they weren't divided up into chapters when they were written. They were just written as letters. They weren't divided up into chapters and verses until hundreds of years uh, afterwards. Uh, but uh, they're, they're letters written to a people. And so sometimes uh, a chapter division doesn't necessarily mean that there was a break in the flow of the thought of the author at all. There, sometimes, in fact, I've, in my opinion, they come, uh, they would be better placed elsewhere than they are. Uh, Paul's thought here is, uh, it's, I don't think it's a bad place to have a chapter division, but it, the thought is continuous. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 ends with Paul describing the church as Christ's body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And I went into some detail try, trying, to, uh, trying to describe that we, the church, are not... You know, sometimes I feel like we're, we're, we're a bunch of people so interested in, in dying and getting resurrected bodies that we miss the fact and reality that we are right now the body of His resurrection. We are the body of His resurrection on the earth. Paul and the whole New Testament, all the apostles describe us, the church, as the, as the multi-membered corporate vessel of the risen Lord Jesus. And, and so, in that way, we are quite literally His body. It's not a figure of speech. It's a, it's a literal reality. And just like any body, the purpose of any body, yours included is to be the expression of the life that dwells within it. That's the purpose of bodies, anybody, whether it's a chicken, a human, or the body of Christ. The body exists to be the expression of the life that is within it. So we're not, we're not meant to become the expression of a bunch of members trying to be like Jesus. We're not meant to be, you know... A bunch of body parts imitating a life. And you've heard me say that before. We're meant to be like anybody, the, the, the expression of the life inside. I mean, how many hands do you know that are trying to express a hand? The hand only expresses the person whose hand it is. So, you know, Jack's hand expresses, not hand, expresses Jack. Milo's hand expresses uh, Milo and and uh, sorry to bring up your hand problems right now. <laughs> Bad choice on the person there. Miles had a little hand problems recently. <laughs> yeah, the left hand still expresses Milo. Uh, Bad choice there. Uh, anyway, we, the members of Christ's body, are meant to be filled up with that life, that nature. 
uh, unto the expression of him, of him, unto his expression, not our, our imitation. His manifestation, not our imagination of what he's like. His exhibition, the exhibiting of him, not our religion. Not, not, not a religious uh, impersonation. T. Austin Sparks, uh, most of you know, is one of my favorite authors. He says that uh, the church is not a what. The church is a who. The church is Christ living in a people. And the church is only functioning as His body when the who is formed in and living through that body. One person I, I know uh, says the, the church is meant to be the presencing of the Lord. The presencing of Christ. Of course, that he had to make up that word, but... It's either the presencing of Christ or it's, or it's really nothing at all. It's either the presencing of Christ or it's the presencing of a belief system or the, or the presencing of a code of ethics or a social gathering that strives toward you know, similar behavior. But it, that's not the church. The church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's the last verse of Ephesians 1 and I'm just kind of reviewing here. So we dealt... We dealt a little bit with the words the fullness of Him because, because uh, you know, that can seem a little odd at first glance. How could we be the fullness of Him? Well, we can't be if you understand that to be meaning that we perfect Him or something like that. But we can be the fullness of Him in the sense that we are the body that gives full manifestation, full expression of Him if He is the all in all that works in our soul. So I gave that, you know, that weird... Uh, analogy of the bodiless pastor, you know, like if I was just a head up here uh, on, the, on the table and, and, and I was preaching a sermon, you know, you'd certainly say, well, first you'd say that's really weird, but then you'd say, that's definitely Jason, but you, 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 you couldn't say that, that you'd had the fullness of Jason unless you had a body, unless my body was up here and my life was filling every member in every way. Then you'd have the fullness of the head filling all in all. So unless my life was formed in that body, there'd be no way for me to fully express or manifest myself in the earth. And that's, that's no different than what Paul's praying in, in, uh, in Galatians 4.19 when he says, he speaks of the church and he says, My children with whom I am in labor, with whom I am in travail, until Christ is formed in you. Not until you act more like Christ, but until Christ is formed in you. And that's the goal of God. Not that you and I would try to express Jesus in the earth through learning about Him, but that you and I would become the expression of Jesus through Him being formed in us. Not that you and I would try to manifest the one we know to be our head, but that the head would be the one, Philippians 2.13, working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And that's through the renewing of the mind and the revealing of Christ, and that gets off our topic. But what's not off our topic is, is that this description at the end of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, of what we are meant to be according to God's eternal purpose, His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all, is followed up immediately by a description of what we are by nature. 
you could say what the Adamic man is by nature. Now, when I say the Adamic man, I just mean the natural man, Adam. Adam, not Adam, the guy that ate the fruit. I mean, he started the whole thing, but, but the, the nature that, that he then, his progeny, his kind, he reproduced after his kind. And uh, his kind was uh, what he became uh, after the fall, a soulish sinner, a vessel, as Paul goes on to say, in whom uh, works the, uh, the prince of the power of the air. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Paul is first telling us what we are to become through new birth, through the transformation of the soul. That's right there at the end of Ephesians 1. And then he makes sure that we realize where we came from. He makes sure that we realize that those who are to be His body, His fullness, started out as His enemy. Children of wrath, it says. Dead in trespass and sin. Even worse than that, vessels of the Spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. And that's our verse for the day, and I'll, I'll read that in just a minute. But, but Paul's not trying to make people feel bad here. He's trying to not, not trying to heap condemnation on you. He's trying to help people realize the reality and power of the cross. Because only when you realize what you were and that you, that, that you had nothing to offer Him, and therefore what God put away by His cross, only then can you really begin to see the eternal purpose of God and filling you with His Son. You could, only then can you begin to see what you have become and what God's purpose is for you. See, until you have seen with... And when I say seen, I'm not talking about visions and I'm not talking about intellect. I'm talking about spiritual understanding. And, and spiritual understanding isn't, isn't your understanding of spiritual things. Spiritual understanding is the understanding of the Spirit working in you. And until you have seen with spiritual understanding that your salvation and, and service in His kingdom is not the improvement of what was there, but the removal and replacement of what was there, you will continue to try to offer up to God what He has already condemned, judged, and put away. And that's a big deal. We'll get more into that. Uh, but let's just read Ephesians 2, 1-3. through 3. It says this, And you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You'll notice in your Bible uh, that the He made alive is in italics, or at least it should be. It's not in there. Uh, it's not that it's wrong. It just doesn't belong there because He's um, not dealing with that yet. He gets into that in verse 5. Uh, he's just, if you have a literal translation, whether J.P. Green or Young's or whatever, it just says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, and it continues. He's not giving them the good news until he gives them the bad news. <laughs> so you can scratch that out. Uh, you know, sometimes the words that are added in italics help clarify because, you know, Greek into English isn't a tit for tat, you know, code. But sometimes uh, it doesn't. And in this case, I don't believe it does. And you who were dead in trespass and sins, in which you uh, once walked according to the course or literally age of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And, and he's, he's comparing, I think, it contrasting uh, 
the you in verse 2 and the we in verse 3 are both Gentile and Jew. We're both in the same boat here. This is Paul's analysis and, and critique of the natural man, of the Adamic man. Apart from Christ's actual life working in you, here's what Paul's telling us about ourselves. We are dead in trespass and sin. We walk entirely according to the world. We are under the power and are in fact the expression of the enemy. We conduct ourselves according to the lust of the flesh. Our aim is to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the carnal mind and we are by nature children of wrath. That seems to me like a, like a huge body slam to the natural man. I mean, just an incredible, an incredible uh, critique of, of the Adamic man. And, and, and it seems to me that it throws right out the window the, uh, you know, the argument that humans are inherently good until we learn evil from society and the Smurfs and rock music and all that stuff. Uh, there's a great misconception in, uh, in the body of Christ that uh, once you're born again, God simply wants to harness and steer your, uh, your natural passions and thoughts and abilities and desires and use them for His purpose. You know, you, you've probably often heard it said, you know, oh, this person's so influential, they're such a good this or that, or they're such a famous basketball player, man, if they could only come to know the Lord, God could just really, you know. That's not true. Hopefully, I'm, uh, I'm not the first to, to pop that bubble this morning, but Paul's telling you here that you are by nature, in our mind, in our will, in our emotions, children of wrath, dead dead in trespass and sin, manifestations of the Spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. The nature, this nature, we have to realize this, we have to face this, we have to ask the Spirit of God to make this real in our soul. That nature is not modified by the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not adjusted or, or uh, customized to be more God-friendly. To, to, you know, it's not customized into a more God-friendly format. That nature is crucified. And until you realize what you are in God's sight by nature, you'll never see what He wants from you. Because He wants not a better version of you, but a body that is filled up and manifests His Son. He wants you to become Ephesians 1, 22 or 23 or wherever it is, the fullness of Him who fills you in every way. And I, I realize, of course, that that's not a very politically correct, spiritually politically correct thing to say, and I also realize that preaching that may never fill the seats in this room, but there's just simply no way around it. You must face your end at the cross before He can become your beginning. You have to find your death there before you'll find Him as the resurrection and the life. You have to realize in the deepest recesses of the human soul that you are contrary to Him in all natural ways before you can allow Him to replace what you were with what He is. That's a fact. And that's why Paul makes sure after laying out God's eternal purpose to have this body of His life expressed, he makes sure to remind us where we come from 
what we came from in chapter 2. I wrote down this in here in the notes. The road to God's eternal purpose for your life begins with the Spirit-given realization that, as Paul says, in the flesh dwells no good thing. The road to Christ being formed in you starts with the recognition that prior to Him there was another Spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Or you could say it this way. The road to spiritual enlargement begins with the realization and reality of our spiritual bankruptcy. So if you and I want to grow up in the Lord, we have to understand how deeply and profoundly contrary we are to Him by nature. In other words, you have to let Him deal with your heart with regards to the otherness of Christ. The otherness of Christ. You couldn't be like Christ any more than you could be like a fruit bat. You could flap your arms and eat a melon and no one would be fooled. You can't do Christ, but He can be formed in you. But that journey begins when when our impersonation of Him ends. If you can hear what I'm saying. The journey to spiritual growth really begins when we face the fact that our impersonation of Him must cease. We have to see what Paul is saying here in these, in these verses. First of all, he says we're dead. Dead in trespass and sin. What does it mean to be dead? Well, obviously, the death he is speaking of here is not the death of the body. He was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, not the cemetery in Ephesus. So he's not writing it to dead people who are dead in the flesh. Biblically speaking, death is not a a ceasing to exist or becoming inanimate or anything like that. Death is simply the lack of spiritual life. The lack of God's spirit residing in the human soul. That's death. Death is actually a very dynamic and active force. It just lacks life. God did not find us alive just lacking righteousness. God found us dead lacking His Son whose life in us is righteousness. You see the difference? God did not find us alive just lacking peace with Him. No, God found us dead lacking His Son's life in us who is peace with God. Ephesians 2, He Himself is our peace. Again, God did not find us alive just struggling with sin. God found us dead in trespass and sin. And this death reigned in every man and woman until God offered the person who was the resurrection and the life. The law, the law given by Moses, exposed, or given to Moses, exposed the deadness the deadness of the uh, the natural man. It held up a it held up a righteous standard to that Adamic man, that natural man, and said, "Go ahead and try to live live this." And that's why Paul calls it a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death. The letter kills. The law aroused my sinful passions. I would not have known sin apart from the law, and all those other scriptures. But even before the law was given and showed Adam to be dead. Death still reigned from Adam to Moses. In fact, it says that in Romans uh, 5.14. It says, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over 
over uh, those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's transgression. And in that state of death, all we could produce was trespass and sin. See, you have to, that, that's what's called the law of sin and death. You have to realize sin is the fruit of death's tree, just like righteousness is the fruit of the tree of life. And so what the cross really offers us, now this may sound confusing at first, but I'll talk about it here. What the cross really offers us, as strange as it might sound, is death to death. Death to death. And the failure to understand that is why I believe Christians spend so much of our lives trying to clean up death and offer it back to God. As, as Milo says sometimes, why we try to patch Adam up and put him back in the game. You know, patch me up, coach, put me back in. That's, that's why we take this nasty, rotten fruit off of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and think that God will accept it if we, if we make it into an apple pie. Adam pie with ice cream on the side or something. See, you have to see that in God's view, that's like giving Him back the garbage that He just took to the curb. Try to imagine if you can, right after, you know, like you, you, you take the garbage... You know, it's, it's trash night and you take the garbage to the curb and then your wife goes out. You, you go back inside. Your wife goes out, drags the garbage back to the house, brings it inside and starts going through it, putting everything back on the shelves. You know, uh, that's... When we, when we face to see the reality that God is putting death to death by His cross, that is exactly what we do. We are blindly offering up God, the garbage that He already put away. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not difficult, I think, to see that prior to Christ dwelling in the soul that we were without life. But I remember being confused. I, remember, I actually remember the, the place I was driving down the road when it hit me. Uh, how, it seemed confusing that... Uh, well, I remember being confused that we I was thinking we, we are dead but yet we have to be crucified with Christ that, that, that didn't, didn't, didn't make much sense to me here we have Paul telling us on the one hand that we're dead in trespass and sin and then so many other places in the New Testament Paul's talking about being crucified with Christ or baptized into his death or buried with him or when one died all died and all that kind of thing and I, and I remember thinking wait a minute, wait if, if we're dead how could we be crucified with Christ if we're already dead in trespass and sin how could we be more dead. I mean, and 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 I remember that being confusing. And I had seen, I, I had seen, and I knew it was true. I, I had seen that apart from Christ, I had no life. And I don't mean when I and I said I, I I saw that. I don't mean I came to believe that was part of Christian doctrine. I I, I mean the spirit of, uh, the spirit of truth had confronted my soul with that reality. I had seen it. I knew it. I knew it as a reality. I, but I had also known, I had also seen in, in a similar, with equal clarity and, and, and spiritual realization that I had been crucified with Christ, died with Him, been baptized into His death. And so for a while, these two deaths, they seem to be kind of uh, in contradiction. And yet, you know, not only are they not in contradiction, like all spiritual reality, they, they made perfect and necessary sense in the light 
that he shines, the light that shines in the heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me try to explain that for a minute. Yes, Adam, that kind, not just that guy, but that kind, is dead. Dead in trespass and sin. Adam as a nature is separated from life. And from Adam to Christ, it was like, it was like the, uh, the night of the living dead. Uh, kind of like that movie, I guess. I, I've never seen it, but the title. That death, that death, however, was not a death that could be escaped. That death was not a death that had any hope of resurrection. Not that death. That death was lifelessness, but not judgment. That death was emptiness, but not justice. It was separation from God, but it was not punishment. In other words, it was not a death that, re- that rectified anything in terms of relatedness to God. It was simply the lack of spiritual life. And Adam was hopeless in that condition, unable to be freed from anything by his death, that death. God said, eat of this tree, you know, and you will surely die. Well, he ate of the fruit and he died, and, and yet that death did him no good. You see what I mean? I mean, it ended nothing. I mean, it didn't satisfy the Father. I mean, it didn't deal with sin. It didn't put away the old man. It didn't change his nature. It didn't justify him before God. It didn't end the problem that man had with God. It was the problem that man had with God. Can you hear what I'm saying? So what spiritually dead Adam needed was an end. What Adam needed was some sort of putting away of this death so that there could be life out from death. And you see, that's what Christ is. I didn't say that's what Christ does. I said that's what Christ is. He is the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just say, I do resurrections on the side. You know, it's it's a part-time job. I do resurrections. I also do healings. So Adam and his creation needed to be put away if God was going to be able to relate to us in His Son, in Christ, in spirit and truth, in the heavens, in the new creation. God needed to... See, Adam needed... I guess you could say it this way. Adam needed to be more than dead in trespass and sin. He needed to be judged, punished, separated, and put away from God's sight so that all that would live would live in another live by another, live by another life. In other words, that they could live in Christ. That is why you see this phrase, in Christ, cropping up 230-something times in the New Testament. Because all who live, live in and by the life of another. Now, whether or not that life is formed in you and whether or not you become the expression of that life is a whole other matter. And we'll get to that in a second. John 6, verse 53. Jesus, Jesus uh, says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. John 5:25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. You see what's going on here? 
Here we have Jesus offering the living dead a life they have never known. You have Him speaking here of the dead being judged. The dead who hear His voice coming into a judgment in and through His death. And that's what eating His flesh and drinking His blood means. And I won't, I won't get into that uh, this morning, but to eat His flesh and to drink His blood is to bear His death and to live by His life in the New Covenant. And there's types and shadows of that all over the Old Covenant and I don't have time to go into all that. But my favorite one is, the, is uh, Jacob or uh, uh, Joseph's dream. Joseph's dream. Uh, but you can look at that at your own time. So what Christ offers uh, the dead in these verses here and, and, in, and in, in the cross is a death is a death that has resurrection on the other side of it. Adam's death produced nothing. But if Adam was brought into the death and judgment of the Son of Man, then those who were dead in sin could then become dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord and walk in the newness of His life. That's just Romans 6. Romans 6, the beginning of Romans 6. Those who are dead in sin become dead to sin. How? By being alive unto God by the life of another. So what is he doing? In effect, he is putting death to death and giving you a whole another life. Not a, not a religion, not a, not a code of ethics, not a book that you try to follow. Life. The dead who hear his voice will by him live. So the cross doesn't change Adam's status before God. Someone uh, wrote me an email once asking me if the cross changed the way God related to Adam. No, it doesn't. The cross didn't make Adam alive. The cross judged Adam eternally in the death of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. That's why Jesus says, when I am, this is John 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He offers death an end. That's what death needed. He offers death a crucifixion. He doesn't change Adam's dead status before God, but he offers you an exodus out of Adam. An exodus. Of course, that's what the entire book of Exodus is showing us, that you get out of death, Egypt, through the death of a lamb. Right? And that's what the whole book's about. How did they get out of Egypt? Through the death of a lamb. Well, the cross doesn't change Adam's nature, but it, but it gives us a door out of that nature. It doesn't undo the garbage that Adam is, but it grants you a ladder out of one realm and into another. And that's what he promised Nathaniel he would see. And John, what is that, 152? 252? You will see a ladder out of one realm. and You will see Jacob's ladder. It grants the dead who hear His voice a person in whom they can live. So anyway, the spiritually dead Adam was brought into the death of Christ. That's why it says, crucify with Christ. And was judged eternally, separated permanently from God with the entire old creation, buried with Christ. So that now we, by new birth, born from above, can step out of one humanity 
and become partakers of another, capital A, another, risen with him to walk in the newness of life. That's the gospel, folks. And of course, that raises the, the, the natural question, and why then do I still manifest Adam? That's everyone's first question, you know, when they start hearing that. Well, we've talked at length about that in other series, and I have, you know, various things on that in the, in the bookstore. But, but just briefly here, the answer to that has to do with the fact that the Lord needs to take out of our heart, out of our understanding, out of our soul, what He has already taken out of His sight by the cross. We have been born of His Spirit. Our soul must now be transformed by the renewing of the mind to bear the image of what, really who, has already happened in us. If my spirit is born again, united with Christ and filled with His life, it doesn't necessarily mean that my soul, my mind, emotions, my will are entirely aware. In fact, they are mostly unaware of Christ as its life. And it continues then to walk in all of its darkened, understanding, all of its carnal affections, natural-minded blindness. It, it fails to manifest and realize and express and have formed in it what already has been freely given, which is why 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, the Spirit of God has been given to you that you might know the things that have been freely given. That's why Jesus says in John 16, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and show it unto you. So he who is our life must become manifestly so by the, by the saving of our soul. And by that I don't mean saving your soul from hell, but saving your soul from you. The transforming of the soul into the image of his life. The conforming you to the image of Christ. That's why Paul often speaks of uh, salvation you know, as be, we are being saved. Being saved. Not just past tense, you know, present ongoing. Being, not just being saved from, from Hades, but being saved from, from the unrenewed soul, from the muscle memory that works in the natural man. So again, dead Adam, having been put away from God through death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, must now be crowded out of our darkened, earthbound, carnal, sense-based, flesh-loving soul through the revealing of Christ, who is our life. Colossians 3.3 Whenever Christ and that's the correct word there, whenever, not when. Whenever Christ, as often as Christ, your life is revealed, then you are revealed together with Him in glory. The cross that finished God's work must now work in my heart to put off the old man and put on the new man. How? Ephesians 4.22 By the renewing of the spirit of the mind. So anyway, that last part took you a little bit away from our current scripture in Ephesians, but it's important to say nonetheless. My main point today is, is really simply just to point out that these three verses, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, give us God's perspective of the Adamic man, of the natural man. And these scriptures don't say that we were headed towards death. They say that we are dead. We were dead. It doesn't say that you, you and I had some struggles with trespass and sin. It says we were dead in trespass and sin. It doesn't say that you had some worldliness issues. 
It says you walked entirely according to the course or the age of this world, the age of the old creation. It doesn't say that you were tempted by Satan, but that he was your prince. And in fact, you gave him expression in the earth. It doesn't say that you had some hang-ups with lust. It says you conducted yourself in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. It doesn't say that you did some things deserving of, of, of wrath. It says that you were by nature a child of wrath. Can you see how Paul is taking great care to describe the dead and depraved condition of the natural man, the Adamic man? I hope we can. Because really, it's only when we see that that we see why that nature in our soul had to be destroyed, face death, and not be channeled or, or modified and offered back to God. And it's only when we see what we were by nature then we can see the contrast, the otherness of the nature that we have been given by God. Second Peter 1, 3, somewhere around there, you have been made partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't make you God, but it does make God the life of your soul. The life that you didn't have before being born from above. So, and and, and actually that's what what Paul uh, is going to go on to describe in the next few verses of Ephesians and we're going to get into that next week or the, probably next week I would would guess. But, uh, how are we doing on time here? Before I close, I just thought I'd say a few things about uh, verse 2 where Paul says, that we all once walked according to the prince or ruler of the, of the power or the word authority of the air. The, the ruler of the authority of the air or the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Uh, as far as why Paul refers to Satan by that title, I'm not, I mean, I'm not exactly certain. Most every commentator I've ever read on that says that the verse makes reference to the fact that every Jew of that time as well as countless uh, uh, pagan uh, religions were of the mind that the air or the atmosphere or, or the quote-unquote second heavens was the abode of the demonic spirits. It, 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 several uh, ancient manuscripts speak of the air be, teeming, with, uh, teeming with demonic activity, fallen angels and all of that. And so Paul, perhaps for that reason, references uh, their prince right here. I can't say for certain that's exactly why he uses that title. Uh, but whatever the reason, I'm sure he's right. Uh, that's not really the, the, the point I want to make. It, the, the point I want to, want to make has less to do with, with why he uses that title for Satan uh, and more to do with the fact that Paul calls him the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. For me, that's quite a statement. My... Uh, my personal opinion is that Paul is not necessarily saying that every unbeliever is demon-possessed like the Gadarene demoniac or something like that, but rather that the Adamic man and his creation are the territory and you could say the playground of the enemy. So many times in the New Testament, contrary to what we preach, and we got into this a few weeks ago, but, but uh, Satan is called by these titles, the God of this age, the ruler of the world. 
The human soul was created to be a vessel. It was created by God. And as a vessel that was, that was to express a nature. That's what Romans 6 ends up going after the part I kind of quoted earlier. It goes on to talk about that, the nature working in us, either righteousness or sin. Anyway, uh, that vessel is either the expression of one kingdom or another. There's only two. There's no, there's no neutral ground. Again, I realize this is offensive to, uh, to people, but it, it's just a fact. There's no gray, year, gray area. Jesus made that incredibly clear in, in his teachings on the kingdom. Paul does as well in Colossians 1. He says that when you're born again, you are translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Two kingdoms, two reigns, working in and through the soul of man. You're, you're born naturally into the one. You're born again into the other. And so we're, you could say, we're the expression of one, one of two princes. One of two rulers, one of two realms, one of two kingdoms. Satan's called the God of this age, the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus is being tempted in Luke chapter 4. Satan takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know how that worked, in some vision or something. And says, all of this is mine. I'll give it to you if you bow down to me. And see, the natural man, the Adamic man, is not just deceived by him, but in fact, in a multitude of ways, has, been, has become the expression of his reign. The expression of his kingdom. That's, that's a little ugly, but that also is true. And it explains what, 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 the, uh, what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, 38. It says, I'll just read you a few verses. Jesus says, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our Father. Jesus said, look, bud, if, Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your Father. Then they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have only one Father, God. And Jesus said to him, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? It is because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil. And the desires of your Father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Jesus wasn't just having a bad day and was being cranky. And I don't think that these Pharisees were uniquely uh, evil. I just think that Jesus was stating a plain fact. Two realms, two kingdoms, two expressions. Jesus is saying that man by nature is a child of wrath. 
deceived and a deceiver, just like their father, the father of lies. And I say all that this week not to paint this horrible, bleak picture of the Adamic man, although that certainly is part of my goal, but I say it so that we can, from from this perspective, from the perspective of understanding what we are by nature, then, from that vantage point, understand the life that God gives us as not the improvement of what was there, but the replacement of what was there. As not the betterment of it. Not, not, not a, you know, modified Adamic behavior, but new life. He did not give you His Son's life so that you can say thanks and still live by yours. He gave you that life so that that life would be formed in you and crowd out what was previously there. I, I, I point out and make you know all these... I repeat, I'm not making them up. I repeat the, the harsh words of Paul and of Jesus not to make you leave feeling condemned but to show you what we started with so that we can see what he has given. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to do in the next few verses. And I'm leaving you without saying those next few verses until next week. You can go ahead and read ahead if you want to. What he did with his great love and what it means to be born from above. And how He took us into His death and burial and resurrection and raised us up and seated us in Him. And all that that means. But it won't mean anything to you if it doesn't first mean that you are dead in trespasses and sin and by nature, by nature, a child of wrath. If we don't understand where we came from, we'll never understand what we have been made by the One who lives in us. Amen. We'll stop with that for this week.